Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. I'm going to give you an odd opening to my guest. There are times when I feel that I really, really have earned my money, my income, as a talk show host. Some very tough things that I have to say, arguments that I may have with callers. And there are times when I think, I can't believe I'm being paid to do this. (laughs) That's how I feel now when I speak to Douglas Murray, one of my favorite thinkers in the world. And I feel very, uh, very fortunate in doing so. Our last time together was uh, actually, he's one of the few guests I've ever had on my fireside chat that I have every week uh, for Prager University, Prager U. And uh, we were just reminiscing about his time in my home. Douglas Murray, what is the official introduction of you? Associate editor of The Spectator. I didn't realize that. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a fighter and a, and, and a great mind in the fight. The War on the West is his latest book. I have to believe it's it's reached uh, bestseller status, has it? Uh, we are number one bestseller on Amazon in the UK, and it hasn't come out yet. And we are number five, as I speak, in the US, where it is out. You can buy it uh, in the US now. Um, it's at number five on Amazon.com. I'm hoping to get it up higher. We're at some, we've got some tricky competition, including Johnny the Walrus. Um, which oh, that is Bob. hilarious. Do you know? I, I, it has to be. I a, don't want to mention Johnny the Walrus. No, no. I don't want to make any more sales <laughs> for that. But, uh, so, the okay. My life well, all right. Uh, my... Uh, my first volume of my Bible commentary, Genesis, the Rational Bible, was number two on Amazon. My competition was a book about a gay rabbit. <laughs> There's no justice in this world. I hope you overtook the gay rabbit at some point. Did you? Uh, I don't recall ever reaching one. I It was two. I, I tell you what, if there's any consolation, the other day... I was being beaten by the highway code in the UK and I ended up beating the highway code. And I said, that's great because the British people have their priorities in order. It's more important to read my book than to know how to drive. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> by the way, in all seriousness, uh, I, I, how do you explain, uh, aside from how important your books are, I, that, that, but, but so what? There are important books that never reach the heights that you have and and uh, i think it's a good sign that your mm. your book is selling this well do you take it that way i, I do i mean i 
I, you know, you know what it's like, Dennis. You, you write because you have to write. Correct. And you right. communicate truths because you just have to communicate them. I would do it if nobody read them. Right, um, right. But the single greatest pleasure and honor that a writer can have is to be read. And I never take it for granted. It's, um, it's so moving to me and humbling, genuinely humbling that I have so many readers because it suggests to me that it's not whether I'm doing something right, it's that there's something right happening, that there are people who want to know the answers that they have to be able to have to hand to fight back against the lies that are told in our era. And that's how I see my books as being as being handbooks for people who are beleaguered by the era and by the lies of the age. And whenever I meet a reader on the streets or I hear from them and they say, I'm so glad you wrote X because then I was able to make this argument in my own life. I just think that for me is the vindication of the life I've chosen for myself. Indeed, it is vindicated. The book, ladies and gentlemen, is The War on the West. And it is, of course, up at DennisPrager.com. I speak about the war on the West every day on, on, on this yeah. program, as, well, as apparently you know. And what I find depressing, <laughs> now to go to the other end of the emotional spectrum, is that there is, there is no acknowledgement except on, on the part of those of us, obviously, who see this. In other words, if I were to say to any woke individual or any professor at an Ivy League college who was making a war on the West, you know you're making a war on the West, most would, would say, oh, oh I don't, I'm not doing that. What do you think they would say? If you, if you took a vote of the Yale faculty, because Yale is particularly awful, and you said, are, are, would you like to see the West end as the West? What do you think the vote would be? Oh, I, I can give you an example of that if I stop to, um, destroying the display behind me. I can read you an example of Good. what they would say. Yeah. Good. Let me do so very quickly, because I think some people, some people don't realize completely what we're up against, Dennis. You do. But some, and I think most of your listeners do. But let me just give you an example of what we are up against, since you mentioned Yale. Okay. Um, last year at Yale, there was a speech. Yale University. I mean, let, let's not. This isn't a um, some third-rate uh, college. It's not um, somewhere where no one's heard of. It's one of the absolute jewels in the crown of American education, or at least used to be. In April last year, Yale hosted a talk by someone called Aruna Kilanani. And the title was The Psychopathic Problem of the White Mind. And in this talk, Kilanani said, among other things, that she fantasized about, quote, unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way, burying their body and wiping my bloody hands as I walked away, relatively guiltless with a bounce in my step like I did the world an effing favor. She described white people as demented, violent predators with holes in their brains, said that white people are, quote, out of their minds and have been for a long time. She continued, 
the white race is, quote, useless. Okay, oh, good. good. So, so, right, right. So uh, let's analyze this. This is a, I remember quoting this on my show. I didn't remember the name of the person. So first, uh, I assume that virtually her entire audience was white. Oh, yeah, I think you're safe to assume that. Yep. Right. So every white is a piece of, of garbage. Uh, yeah. The white people who paid her to come who sat on stage with her or sat in the audience and listened, what is going on in their minds? Are they, are they saying yes, and that includes me? What are they saying to themselves? Well, of course, some of those people are just magnificent narcissists. They think that the rest of us who are white should spend our lives feeling punished, um, beating up on ourselves, cringing our way through life, apologizing our way through life with hereditary guilt, hereditary sin because of the color of our skins. But there's also a type of person for whom this is the most magnificent form of narcissism. Uh, they effectively are the sadists inviting all the rest of us to be masochists. Um, it is an absolute extraordinary thing. Uh, we live in an era, this is why the first uh, chapter of my book, The War on the West, is about the war on white people. White people still are the majority in the West, in America, as in Britain, and uh, other Western countries. But the, found, the first thing that happens with the war on the West is the war on white people, where we, we who are white are made to feel as if we have done something wrong by being born. We are, um, we are pathologized so that we have white guilt, we have, remember what Robin D'Angelo gave us, white fragility. We have white tears. White women have white women tears. When a white woman goes missing, Joy Reid of MSNBC says, oh, America's gone mad with white, missing white woman syndrome. And just in case people don't think that Joy Reid is a serious person, and they'd be right, General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is or should be a serious person. And he talks to Congress, testifying in front of Congress about that week's latest white pathologization, which was white rage. So it begins with a war against white people, where people who happen to be born with white skin, there's nothing wrong with being born with white skin, as there's nothing wrong with being born with black skin. It's a morally neutral thing. White people are told that there is something wrong with them, that they have things to atone for, that they are uniquely right. guilty. All right. So and it... I reject all of this. My my theory is that whites is a euphemism for the West, which is exactly mm -hmm. the title. They hate yeah. the West. Whites built the West. And yeah. uh, so that's your theory as well? Yes. And I'd add to it. Remember that the most derogatory term of our era is dead white men. That's just the product of dead white men. Uh, there's an interesting thing about this, of course, is that the arrogant young people in particular who use this term uh, think that it's not only wrong to be white and male, but also to be dead, uh, as if that's not a problem that will ever come to them. Um, correct. Dead white that, males, that's correct, by the way. Yeah. Dead white males mm -hmm. is used as an insult of people. This is why the classical tradition, I mean, both of us care deeply about the art, um, this is why the classical tradition has become part of the 
it has become one of the things in the target sites of these cultural revolutionaries. They come for all of the arts because it's the creation of dead white men. They hate classical music because it's composed largely by dead white men. There are Baroque ensembles in America that are tearing themselves apart at the moment because they can't find enough black female composers from the Baroque era. No other culture does this to themselves. Uh, the publishing houses of the West desperately try to find anyone uh, other than dead white men to celebrate. And uh, this, we are the only culture that does this to ourselves. No other culture has such a lack of reverence for the people who've gone before them, for all of the political figures, for all of the political heroes, for all of the founding fathers, for Abraham Lincoln, for all of the presidents, all of the writers, the artists, the musicians, the thinkers, the people who built the great bridges of America and the highways. No other culture would hate all of these people. Only the West has decided to hate itself. Where does this come from? Well, it's several things. One, as we mentioned in the previous segment, is a kind of narcissism. One of, one of the things, though, is that there's people who take advantage of the decency of the West. You see, as I said, no other culture would, would not, not only would no other culture do this, no, no other culture would allow it to happen. You know, go to China and tell the Chinese people they have nothing to say for themselves, nothing good about themselves. Go to any country, go anywhere in Africa or the Middle East or anywhere else and say you have nothing good to say about yourselves and see if they'd agree. Um, so one of the problems is this. Another is that we have in the era of multiculturalism, which I, I agree with Samuel Huntington, that multiculturalism is in its essence an anti-Western phenomenon. It's, it, it says you that... that the, the West itself is not enough. You have to become effectively the United Nations. And that isn't to say there should be no migration or no immigration. There are many benefits from immigration. But to say that diversity is a good in itself is to say that the West itself is not enough. And so one of the things we've seen is the development of what I say, quoting Lord Clark, uh, Alan Clark, uh, Clark's father, uh, Kenneth, the late Kenneth Clark, a very distinguished historian um, who did the famous series Civilization in the 60s. Uh, um, Kenneth Clark said that one of the great virtues of the West, one of the great virtues was what he described as courtesy. Now, the thing with courtesy is it can be taken advantage of. And we in the West have become used to being courteous so that we travel around the world and we look at the cathedral, we look at the the temples of the Far East and don't look at the cathedrals on our own doorsteps. We, we're courteous towards every tradition other than our own. We think it's polite to flatter every tradition other than our own. American writers look to Native American wisdom and First Nations wisdom. And we now have in America, even in the STEM subject, this nonsense of saying, for instance, that maths itself, as I go into in the book, is a Western white concept and that black people and indigenous peoples have, quote, other ways of knowing. And we flatter that. We pretend that there are answers that are not mathematics. We pretend that there are other ways of knowing instead of science. And in the context, in the, in, in the consequence of this, is that we pull the whole house down. Because, of course, the thing about mathematics is not that it is the creation of white people, but that it works. The thing with the Western scientific method is not that it was created by white people, but that it works. And on and on. And so once you pretend 
and you're courteous and pretend that other things are just as good as what you have, you actually begin the process of disintegration. So I, I return, though, and I'm not sure we, we, we can know an answer. It's very similar, when I think about it, to a book I wrote many, many years ago called Why the Jews? Mm. The Reason for Anti-Semitism. Yes. And a good part of the hatred of Jews, I, I don't mean disliking, or there are ethnic bigotries against every group, but mm. the hatred of Jews was was exterminationist, as one professor put it. Mm. The hatred of Jews in large measure emanated from what the Jews brought into the world. The God mm. of the West, the Bible yes. of the West, for Christians, the Messiah of the West. I mean, the Jews brought a lot in. Mm. And people don't like that. Mm. So it, it, it's, it's a hatred of those that have done good ironically yes it's a war on everything that has worked right that's that's one of the signals of it and i just add one other thing quickly i quote nietzsche in the book quite a lot nietzsche had a great phrase for some of the people we're talking about he describes and this is exactly what i say he describes people who talk about justice but mean revenge right i want to just develop this point the hatred of the white is it is, as I said, a euphemism for the hatred of the West. Mm -hmm. See, the fact of the matter is, Western classical music is the greatest music ever written. Yes. And they resent whites for having written it. Just as mm. the, the, um, there, there was a great non-Jewish thinker, uh, I will, his name will come to my mind momentarily, he wrote the Jewish mystique, Ernest von den Haag. He used to write for mm. National Review. He's a brilliant, brilliant, he was a brilliant thinker. Mm. And he wrote, uh, and this is an area I have some expertise in, uh, anti-Semitism, taught Jewish history on the college level, and I wrote this book. Von den Haag said the Jews were hated for bringing into the world a judging God. Mm. Mm. And, and, and the, the whites are hated not for slavery, <laughs> If, if slavery meant you would be hated, there would be far more hatred of, of the Islamic and Arab worlds. That's exactly, that's, that's the point I bring across in the book, by the way. I, 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 I deliberately bring in information like that, which I think almost nobody in America knows. Um, you know, the transatlantic slave trade was, it was an appalling, vile trade. It was also totally typical of the time. Um, everybody was selling and buying slaves. Of course, as Voltaire famously said in the 18th century, the only thing more wicked than what the Europeans were doing to the Africans was what the Africans were doing to their brother and sister Africans in stealing them and selling them and then trading in them. But put that aside for a second. Does one in a million Americans know that if maybe 10 million people, poor souls, were trafficked across the Atlantic during the transatlantic slave trade. Does one in a million Americans know that up to 18 million, 18 million African slaves were traded east to the Arab countries in the same period? Why then are there no descendants in Arabia? Because the Arabs, unlike the Americans and the Europeans, mm -hmm. castrated mm -hmm. every male so that there would not be another generation of blacks in the continent. 
So this was an actually genocidal movement. Do, 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 does anyone in the world, anyone in the West who beats up on the West, the undoubted evils of the slave trade, know that everybody did this? What, if we are to tear down things that slaves built or were built on the backs of slaves, we should start to tear down the pyramids in Egypt because the workers there didn't get a fair day's wage for a fair day's labor. We would have to pull down the Parthenon in Athens because does anyone think that it was Alcibiades himself who took the stones to the top of the mountain? And as for the tradition, as you just mentioned, of classical music, there's something which you know, Dennis, but some listeners may not, which is that at Oxford University, my own alma mater, and again, we mustn't get stuck on universities because this is all spilled out into the wider world. As Andy Sullivan said, we all live on campus now. But at my own old University of Oxford, the music faculty is discussing stopping the teaching of the Western notation system because it is the creation of dead white males. And here is the thing that you know, Dennis, but again, very few people do know this, that there are other notation systems in the world. The Chinese have a version. There is an Indian notation system that does the two things of working out how to do, how to put on the page time and pitch. But if you played today, to somebody using any notation system other than the Western notation system. If you played a Haydn symphony and somebody wrote it down in these systems, they could not play back to you something that would even remotely sound like what was played. Whereas American musicologists and others for years traveled to places like Bali and wrote down the local music using the Western notation mm -hmm. system. In other words, what I'm saying is just as the Western system of mathematics works, not because it's for white people, because it works. Just as the Western system of science and the scientific method works, not because it was created by white people, but because it works. So the Western system of music notation is not just one of many, but the best system. And not because it was created by white people, but because it works. Exactly. And we are in the process of destroying all of these things in the name of anti-racism. The War on the West, Douglas Murray, and it is up at DennisPrager.com. I have a question you probably not asked much. It actually haunts me, this question, and I, my answer, I have an answer, but I'm, I'm not happy with it. So the question I have is, what makes a person like you or to be honest, a person like me, what makes us? I mean, we're both uh, we're both outliers uh, in, in in our own worlds, and uh, I have come to the conclusion that there's no answer. It's sort of built in. We can't. There are people who can't stand lies. Yes, and I think you're one of them. I think I'm one of them. And we are being told to say the biggest lies ever. Not just that yes. two and two may not be four, but, but that what the West has made is not better. That's a gigantic mm. lie. It is better. Yes. So why, why, not why, what made you? And I don't have an answer, by the way. I don't know what made me. Uh, uh, so it just seems that nature or God or, or throws out certain people who can't abide by 
by the mediocre, by the lie, and there's mm. no rhyme or reason. Do you have a theory? I have two theories. Uh, uh, one is what you just described, Dennis. Um, I I always struggle because I'm British by birth with ever saying anything sort of about myself. <laughs> I'm not used to it particularly. No, no, I I, I don't. I'm not. I don't find it easy either. But we have to do it. Yeah, we have to. So I, I, some years ago, somebody asked me, uh, you know, what drives you, and I was umming and ahhing in a very British way. And a British journalist called Melanie Phillips, you may well know. Um, oh, was standing yeah. nearby, and she, and she leapt in, and she said, "Douglas has a very low tolerance threshold for lies." There you go. And so I've 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 used that ever since uh, with attribution. Um, so that's the first thing. I'll tell you what I think the second thing is, and this is something I don't think I've very often, if ever, said. I think that I'm driven by a vision of what a good life is, and what a good world looks like. And that isn't the same thing as a perfect world. And it isn't the same thing as um, a John Lennon-like imagined dream. It is that there is an optimal situation, which I believe I've seen, uh, seen versions of, a type of civilization which is as good as it can get. Now, you might say, what exactly is that? And as I say at one point in the book, if you asked me what I loved about Western civilization... I could spend the first hour just listing cities, Paris, Rome, Florence, Venice, Barcelona, Madrid, on and on and on. So I believe that I was lucky to be brought up in a moment when a vision of Western civilization was still visible, when it was still discernible, albeit through murk, through missed and much more um, through a smog you might say but I saw it and I believe in it and I admire it and I want crucially to retain it I don't want to destroy it I don't want to do what the cultural revolutionaries do and tear it down in the belief that what I could put up afterwards would be better I believe that the purpose of life is to a great extent to be found in locating that which is beautiful and good and desiring to not just continue it, but to add to it if you can. And that vision, at any rate, is one of the things that drives me and I would suspect is one of the things that drives you as well. That's why, there's no question, that's why I don't think there is an answer. My, Mm. My question may simply almost even be naive. What what makes the we're outliers? By the way, you you will find this of interest. I have mentioned this uh, not in your presence on a on a few occasions. If you look at the leading what what is known as public intellectuals of the right, or conservative public intellectuals, a disproportionate number of them are blacks, Jews, and gays. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yes. Well, for a movement entirely comprised of bigots, of course. Yes, it, and it homo- no, and homophobes and anti-Semites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it, 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 when you look at the list, I could send you the list I've compiled. Very funny. It is. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's truly outliers. 
Mm. Uh, In in each of those communities, the the dominant strain is on the left. Yes. Yes, it's possible that that itself throws up uh, um, anomalies. And my belief is, by the way, and some of your listeners, particularly younger listeners, might, might find this encouraging, is that if you walk through one fire... Um, you will find it easier to walk through the next one and on and on until you become a quite practiced firewalker. And uh, that's one of my experiences in life is that the first times you, you sort of start to dip your feet into it, you, you, you are very sensitive, you are fearful, understandably. But it just gets easier and easier. And in fact, you can end up, you, you must never enjoy the firewalk too much uh, because that's a temptation in itself. But you can become... You can become you can become hardened to it without being um, a hardened and tough and unpleasant mm-hmm. person. By the way, Douglas, are you living in uh, Britain? Have you left Britain? Have you done your own no, Brexit? I've, I've done my own Brexit. I live in uh, America now. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm um, a refugee for my own country for the time being. Why, why did you pick New York? One I'll of, tell you why, because... Um, my view is that throughout much of my life and much of your life, Europe and Britain have been the net exporters of bad ideas into America, and that in recent years that situation has reversed. America is now the world's net exporter of bad ideas. Mm-hmm. The things that I write against in the in the war on the West, the the uh, anti-white racism, the hatred of our history, the attempt to pull down the Judeo-Christian religion and the secular traditions of the West, the desire to politicize all art and culture. These are all things that have come from America in recent years. Now, my own country of birth, Britain, suffers from this, undoubtedly suffers from this. It's one of the reasons why Britain has a war on Winston Churchill going on at the moment, which I describe in the book, an unfathomable thing only a few years ago. But here's the point, is that America is the place that has exported these ideas. And my belief is, that you, there is very little point in dealing with a secondary virus, hmm. the primary thought virus of our day, and indeed the ethical and moral disaster of our day, such as the re-racialization of society in the name of anti-racism, such as the leveling of all of our heroes, the pulling down, literally, of our heroes, our founders, and much more. These things have come from America. And if they're not addressed in America, they can't be addressed anywhere. So I want to be... You went, you went to the belly of the beast. Life. I decide to go to the belly of the beast. I, do, I, I could have an easier life, mm-hmm. but I don't want one. This is the absolute... The, the, one of the key struggles of our time is to sustain what we have received from our forebears without wrecking it. And in order to do that, we have to be able to solve this question and address it in America. And that's why in the war on the West, I try to arm people with facts, arm people with the things we need to know, say back at the people who would destroy everything we have that is good. Well, on that, on that note, Douglas Murray, God bless you. The book is The War on the West. It is up at my website, ladies and gentlemen. It's important. And I want you to know, people like Douglas Murray give me strength, as many of you say I give you. We all need each other. We're fighting for the best thing ever made. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. 
Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today.